welcome to today's Read Aloud. We have Jasmine Anderson for our Halloween special, um, dressed as a pirate. And as um, some of you may know, she has performed in some of the Renaissance festivals as a pirate uh, in this same costume. Um, and she has some really neat stories to read about, books, um, and I'll let her tell you all about them. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So <laughs> Yeah, this is my second year back doing this. Um, the first time I did this, I was also dressed up as uh, my Pirates of the Caribbean character, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. As Ruth mentioned, my name is Jasmine. I work underneath Business and Finance in the Office of Financial Services. So for you students, when you pay tuition, I see that coming. So that's, that's my job, is to make sure that your tuition money, with your tuition money, the debits equal the credits, Everybody's happy. That's my job. But for today, I'm here as Calypso. And if you've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies with Johnny Depp, then you should know who I am right now. Um, if not, I highly recommend watching those movies. Obviously, they're some of my favorite movies, or I would not be dressed up like this today. So um, my character is in the second and third movies. Um, she's a little more prominent in the third movie. And the latest movie that came out, she's not in it at all, so it's a little sad. But um, anyway, to keep with the pirate theme, I have two books that I'm going to read. Um, the first book is, and both have little hints of poetry in them, so if you're not poetry fans, that's your warning right now. But um, if you want to stick around, you know, they're, they're pretty good stories. The first one is called The Ballad of the Pirate Queens, and it's by Jane Yolen and illustrated by David Shannon. It's a really neat um, children's book that I came across recently, and it talks about um, the pirate queens being Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, the two infamous um, women pirates that actually existed. So that's what we're gonna start off with today. I'll do my best uh, holding up so everybody can see the pictures, but arms are kind of tight, <laughs> so I'll do my best. Okay. Port Maria, 1720. The autumn seas are deep and dark in Port Maria Bay. The tunny fish all leap and sport around the bustling quay. What news, what news, the people cry. What news bring you to town? The governor has sent his ships to pull the pirates down. The governor has sent his ships with cannons all a bristle. And on the silver sea they sail, just like a stinging thistle. And silver the coins and silver the moon, silver the waves on top of the sea, when the pirate ship comes sailing in, the gallant vanity. Now one small sloop that flew the black was Rackham's vanity, and it was manned by twelve brave lads upon the rolling sea. When it was far, far from shore, those twelve brave lads were ten, for only on the sloop was known that two of them weren't men. Though only on the sloop was known that one was Bonnie Ann, and one was Mary Reed who dressed exactly like a man. What news, what news, the people cry, what news brings you to town? Barnett has sailed his man of war to pull the pirates down. Barnett has sailed the Albion upon the autumn sea to capture Wackham, Calico Jack, and the gallant vanity. He slipped the western point of land all on that autumn day, and there the pirates lay in wait for their accustomed prey. 
And silver the coins and silver the moon, silver the waves on top of the sea, when the pirate ship comes sailing in, that gallant vanity. The autumn seas were deep and dark near Point Negril that day. Two pirates stood upon the deck, the rest below did play. The rest below did drink and sport, while up above the two kept silently their daily watch for vanity and crew. A ship, a ship, did Mary cry, and Annie cried, man of war. But down below, Jack and his men did drink and sport some more. And silver the coins and silver the moon and silver the waves on top of the sea when the pirate ship comes sailing in that gallant vanity. A ship, a ship, did Mary cry, come up and lend a hand. But Rackham and his merry men came not to her command. A ship, a ship, then Anne cried too, or else we will be taken. But Rackham and his merry men their duties had forsaken. So shoulder to shoulder and back to back stood Mary and stood Anne. Never was it said that they were feared of any man. But one and two and through and through, Barnett's men plowed their blades until they'd overpowered both those doughty pirate maids, until Barnett had overcome and brought them both to shore, aboard the mighty Albion, that bristly man of war. What news, what news, the people cry, what news bring you to town? The vanity is captured and two pirate queens brought down. And silver the coins and silver the moon, Silver the waves on top of the sea, when the pirate ship comes sailing in, that gallant vanity. The winter seas were dark and cold around Jamaica Isle, when Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were ready for their trial. They marched along the prison walk, they passed Jack Selbach by, called Anne, if you'd fought like a man, my Jack, you need not die. If you had fought right by my side, this day we'd both be free, as sailing in the open air all on the silver sea. The pirate queens before the judge each pleaded for her life. I'm about to have a child. I am a pirate's wife. Oh, you may be a pirate's wife, or by a man beguiled, but never would I hang a maid and kill the sinless child. So Calico Jack and all his crew hanged on the gallows tree, but Bonnie Ann and Mary Reed were by the judge set free. And silver the coins and silver the moon, silver the waves on top of the sea, when the pirate ship comes sailing in, that gallant vanity. And they still say on autumn nights in Court Maria Bay, where tunny fish all leap and sport around the bustling quay. A ghostly ship sails to and fro above the silver waves. Then Jack and all his coward crew rise anxious from their graves. To sail the endless ocean round, no, never a rest they get. But Anne and Mary's children's children round their household holds play. And silver the coins and silver the moon, silver the waves on top of the sea, when the ghostly ship comes sailing in, that gallant vanity. So that was in that little poem. And at the end here, there's just a little author's note to give a little more background on Anne and Mary. And it just says that Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed were women pirates who sailed with Calico Jack Rackham's crew in the sloop Vanity 
along the coast of America in the 1700s. In fact, they were the most famous women pirates in the world. Stories about their trial on November 20th, 1720, filled the penny papers and news sheets of the day. Captain Jonathan Barnett's man of war, Albion, captured the vanity because only Anne and Mary were up on deck and willing to fight. The men were below drinking rum and playing cards with nine turtle fishermen they had captured that day. Anne visited her husband Rackham in prison and said to him, I am sorry to see you there, but if you had fought like a man, you need not be hanged like a dog. Then she walked away. She and Mary Reed pleaded their bellies, meaning they were pregnant. Some say Mary died in prison and that Anne's father got her all free. She settled down as a poor but honest housewife with two children on a small Caribbean island. Others say that Mary did not die, but feigned death and was carried out of prison in a shroud. Still others that both Anne and Mary were set free by the judge then moved to Louisiana, where they raised their children and were friends to the end of their lives. We can only imagine the stories they must have told at bedtime. So that's the end of this children's book. I thought it was pretty cute. Okay, the next book is um, can be described as like a youth novel, and it's called Castaways of the Flying Dutchman, and it's by Brian Jacques. And um, to give a premise of the story, it's about a boy and his dog as they go on adventures throughout the world. And um, it, it got to be, there's a little mystery behind them, which the book explains, I don't wanna get everything away. But um, it turns out they're doing the work uh, of an angel as they go throughout the world um, helping people. So that's a little background of, of the story. And um, I thought about reading experts throughout the book, but um, it's actually, it was actually better to just read it uh, a little from the beginning because it, it, gives, it sets it up nicely. So it gives a little background and um, it also gives a little teaser towards that makes you want to read more. So. Let's get started with this. Okay, the boy's name is Neb, short for Nebuchadnezzar. And um, the boy's, I mean, the dog's name is Den, which is short for Denmark, and they're both from Denmark, the country Denmark. So after a while, Neb lost count of time. Nights and days came and went with numbing regularity. It was a world of water with no sign of land on any horizon. Both he and the dog had been seasick. There were moments when the boy wished himself back on land. Even living in Jornson's herring cellar seemed preferable to the high seas. As the Flying Dutchman sailed south and a point west, warm waters and fair weather fell behind in the ship's wake. It grew progressively colder, windier, and harsher. The South Atlantic's vast, heaving ocean wastes were relentless and hostile, with troves deep as valleys and wave crests huge, like huge hills. It took a lot of getting used to, one moment being lifted high with naught but sky around, 
Next instant, falling into perilous troughs, facing a blue-green wall of solid water. Having few duties to keep him busy was very frustrating, and Neb sat with Denmark, just inside the stern cabin doorway, forbidden to move until the captain ordered it. Vanderdecken talked to himself a lot when setting charts and plotting his vessel's course. The boy cannot avoid hearing most of what was said. Yesterday we passed the coast of Brazil in the southern Americas, somewhere twixt Recife and Ascension Island. I gave orders to the steersmen to take another point southwest. In three days we should pick up the currents running out from Rio de Plata, sailing closer to the coast but keeping well out at the Gulf of San Jorge towards Tierra del Fuego and Cape Horn, the most godforsaken place on earth. Ned could not help but shudder at the tone of Vanderdecken's voice. He hugged his dog close, seeking reassurance in the friendly warmth of Denmark's glossy fur. The captain glanced across at him, setting down his quill pen. Bring forth drink, food and drink, boy. Don't waste time dwelling with the hands. I need you back here. Jump to it. There were lines strung across the deck. Without these ropes to hold on to, a body would be swept over the side and lost forever in seconds. Ned came staggering into the galley with his dog in tow, both of them drenched in icy spray. Petros had wedged himself in a corner by the stove. His stomach wobbled as he strove to stand normally on the bucking, swaying craft. The Greek cook glared hatefully at the boy, upon whom he blamed all of his misfortunes. You creep in here like a wet ghost. What do you want, dumb one? Ned picked up a tray from the galley table and conveyed it by a gesture a series of gestures that he had come for food and drink. With bad grace, Pedro slopped out three bowls of unnamed stew he'd concocted and three thick ship's biscuits that clacked down on the tray like pieces of wood. He waved his knife menacingly in Neb's directions. You not mangy dog get food for nothing. Get out of Pedro's galley before I kick you out. He raised a foot but dropped it quickly. The black Labrador was standing between him and the boy, his hat was up, showing his teeth and fang, growling dangerously. Petro shrank back. Take that wild beast away from me. Get your own coffee and water from the crew's nest. Go on, get that dog out. Ned delivered the food to Vanderdecken, then went off to the crew's mess, bearing his tray. Jamil and Sin had just arrived from in the fosal cabin after checking the rigging. As Ned came through the door, they cast surly glances at him, another case of mal malcontents blaming him for their bad luck, though it was some justification in their case. Vogel, the German mate, was also suspicious of Ned and his dog. Talk among the crew was that the captain used them both to spy on the crew. Not wanting to lose his position as mate, Vogel elbowed Jamil and Sin's side, allowing the boy to fill two bowls of coffee and one with water for the dog. When you, have, when you two have had coffee, I'll chain you back to the anchor locker, he said to the seaman. Captain's orders. Hurry up, boy. There'll be cold, thirsty men waiting to get a drink. The tone of the mate's voice caused Denmark to turn and snarl. Vogel sat quite still, as if he was ignoring the dog, though it was obvious he was scared to move. Get that hound out of here. Back to the captain's cabin. Neb nodded meekly, not wanting to upset the big German. Sin took his turn at the coffee urn, commenting, Bad luck to have a dog on board the ship, eh, Jamil? The Arab grinned weakly. Aye, bad luck. 
This shit be all bad luck, poor fortune for poor sailors. Wrong time, bad season to be going round Cape Horn. You know that, Mr. Vogel. The mate stared at the hawk-faced Arab. Never a good time for going around Horn. No time. I know of ships that never get around. Many try once, twice, for a long time. Ugh. They run out of food, starve. You see that bad ocean out there, dumb boy? That's not, that's not, that is like a smooth lake to the seas around Tierra de Fuego and Cape Horn. Ned placed his drinks on the tray and maneuvered carefully out of the cabin, with Jamil's parting remarks in his ear. Ship won't run out of food if it gets caught in the seas. We've got fresh meat on board. Dog, have you, have you ever eat dog before, Mr. Vogel? No, but I hear those who have, they say dog makes very good meat. Neb crossed the spray dead wash with its set jaw and a grim face, Denmark right at his heels. Winter came howling out of the Antarctic wastes like a pack of raving wolves. Once the Flying Dutchman had passed the islands of Mal Malvinas, the ocean changed totally. It was as if all the waters of the world were met in one place, boiling, foaming, hurling ice and spume high into the air with no pattern of tide or current, a maelstrom of maddening waves. Beneath a sky hewed the lead and basalt, guile shrieked through the ship's rigging, straining every stitch of canvas sail, wailing eerily through the taut rope lines until the vessel thrummed and shuddered to its very keel. Every hatch and doorway was battened tight. Every movable piece of gear aboard lashed hard down. Only those needed to sail the ship stayed out on deck. The rest crouched fearfully in the fosicle head cabin, fear stunning them into silence. Pedro tried to make it from the galley to the fosicle cabin. As he opened the galley door, the ship was struck by a giant wave, a great milky white cumber. It slammed the galley door wide, dragging the cook out like a cork from a bottle, flooding inside and stuffing up a fire in the stove with one vicious hiss. When it was gone, so was the cook, the huge wave carrying his unconscious body with it out into the fathomless ocean. Ned and Denmark were in the captain's cabin, viewing the scene through the thick glass port in the cabin door. He had once heard a reformer in Copenhagen standing on a platform in the square, warning sinners about a thunderous, fat-sounding thing called Armageddon. Both the boy and the dog leapt backwards as a mighty wave struck the door, causing it to shake and judder. Ned clasped the Labrador co close to him. Had the Flying Dutchman sailed into Armageddon? Vanderdecken was in his element out on the stern deck. None but he had a real steersman skill in elements such as these. He seemed to revel in it. A line wound and tied about his waist and the wheel held him safe. He fought the wheel like a man possessed, keeping his ship on course, straight west along the rim of the border of the base of the world. Only when the vessel rounded Cape Horn did the course change north, up the backbone of the Americas to Valparaiso, with the, fast, with the fastenings of his cloak ripped apart, and the hat ripped from his head by the wind's fury, the captain bared his teeth at the storm, hair streaming out behind him like a tattered pennant, salt water mingling with the icy tears, the elements squeezed from his eyes. Bow on into the savage, wind-torn ocean, he drove his craft, roaring aloud, Round the horn, take us safe to Valperioso! 
He was a skilled shipmaster and has learned all of his lessons on the seas the hard way. But the maddened seas of Tierra de Fuego washed over the bones of captains far more experienced than Vanderdecken, master of the Flying Dutchman. Two weeks later, and halfway back to the Malvinas Islands, the Flying Dutchman languished in swelling roughs with sheet anchors dragging forward and stern, beaten backward from the horn. The captain paced the decks like a prowling beast, flogging with the rope's end and berating the hands, angered at this defeat by the sea. Men were aloft, chopping at rigging and cutting loose torn sail canvas. The ship's carpenter was up there also, binding cracked and broken spars with tar-coated ripping line. Neb was back as cook, swabbing out the galley and salvaging what he could from the food lockers. There was precious little, as some of the vegetables in the sack and a cask of salted meat had been swept away when Petrus was lost. One of the clean water barrels had its contents tainted by seawater. The dog dragged saturated empty sacks from beneath the table, his old hiding place. Soon Neb had a fire going, and the stove and warmth began returning to the galley. He chopped vegetables and salt cod to make stew and put coffee on the brew in a big pan. It was very unusual for the captain, but he came into the galley and sat at the table eating his meal and drinking coffee there. Denmark stayed between the stove and the far bulkhead. The dog never showed any inclination to be near anyone except Ned. Ignoring the animal's presence, the captain gave orders to the boy. Take that food and coffee to the fosicle head cabin. Serve it to the hands. Don't hurry, but listen to what they are saying. Then come back here. Go on, boy, take your dog too. Neb did as he was bitten. While he was gone, Vanderdecken sat at the galley table, the door partially open, staring out at the restless waves, thinking his own secret thoughts. After a while, Neb returned, carrying the empty stew pot with the dog trailing at his heels. Vanderdecken indicated a packing box, which served as a chair on the table. Sit there, boy, and tell me what you had. Neb looked perplexed. He pointed to his mouth and shrugged. The captain fixed him with a stern, piercing stare. I know you're mute. Keep your eyes on me and listen. Now the crew are not happy, yes? I can tell they're not by the look of your eyes. Keep looking at me. They're, they're talking among themselves. It's mutiny. They want to take over my ship and sail back home. Am I right? Neb's eyes widened. He felt like a flightless bird in the presence of a cobra his gaze riveted on the remorseless, pale, pale gray eyes. The captain nodded. Of course I'm right. Who is the one doing most of the talking, eh? Is it Vogel? No? Then perhaps there's another. Renshaw, the Austrian? No, he's too stupid. Maybe there's two spokesmen. A pair, the pair I'd put in chains? Am I right, aren't I? It's Jamil and Sind. Though I'll wager that Sind is the one who does most of the talking. Ned sat fascinated by Vanderdecken's uncanny judgment. He did not move. The icy gray eyes held him pinned, as if they were reading his mind like a book. The captain laid a short, fat musket on the table. It had six stubby barrels, which could discharge simultaneously at one pull of the trigger. A pepper pot musket of the type often used in riots with devastating effect in enclosed spaces. Ah, your eyes are too honest to lie, boy. 
Stay here, lock the door, and admit nobody but myself. Concealing the weapon beneath his tattered cloak, the Dutchman swept out of the galley. Locking the door securely, the boy trembling was left with his dog. They sat staring at one another, Denmark lying his head upon his young master's lap, gazing up at him with anxious eyes. Neb had no idea how long he sat thus, awaiting the report of the fearsome musket, but none came. He thought that maybe the crew had overcome their harsh captain and thrown him overboard. The boy's eyes began to close in the galley's warmth when Denmark stood up suddenly alert. Somebody banged on the door and the voice called out, Open up, boy, it's your captain. Trembling with relief, Neb unbolted the door. Vanderdecken strode in and sat at the table. Bring my notebook, quill, and ink from my cabin. Whilst he made more coffee, Neb listened to Vanderdecken and Tony as he wrote in his ship's log. We sail back to Cape Horn at dawn's first light. This time, the Flying Dutchman will make it round the horn. Every man will be on deck working. Tonight, I call the mutiny among the crew. Now there are no voices raised against my command. Sin, a Burmese deckhand, was the ringleader. He no longer has to wait until we get back to Copenhagen for judgment and execution. Using my authority as captain to send mutiny or preserve good order aboard the vessel, I summarily charged and hanged him myself. Vanderdecken glanced up from his writing at Ned's horrified face. For the first time, the boy saw what appeared to be a smile on the captain's face. If you ever command a ship, which isn't very likely, always remember this, boy. Should the voyage prove risky and the returns valuable, it is wise to sign up your crew from all nations. That way, they lack any common bond. A disunited crew is the easiest one to control. Take my word for it. Those were the last words Vanderdecken spoke that night. He slept sitting in his chair, the pepper pot musket on the table in front of him. Neb and Denmark lay down together near the stove by the far bulkhead watching the strange man. Red reflections from the galley stove fire illuminated his harsh features. They never once relaxed, not even in sleep. Four days later, the Flying Dutchman was off the coast of Tierra del Fuego again with Vanderdecken as steersman and all hands on deck striving in the depths of midwinter to round the cape once more. It was sheer madness and folly to attempt such an undertaking at that time of year, but none dared say so. Armed with a sword and musket, the captain drove his crew like slaves. Sleep was snatched in two-hour shifts. Rations were reduced to half fare. Men were constantly forced aloft to cut away, repair, or adjust battered rigging. Neb was kept on his feet night and day, rationing out boiling coffee, cooking the meager scraps that were the crew's diet, and battling constantly to keep the galley dry and the fire going. It was extra difficult because most hands slept there now, under the table, on empty sacks in all four corners, catching what rest they could until lashed out by the knotted rope at the end of Mr. Vogel, the mate. Vanderdecken drove himself even harder than his crew, Retiring only briefly, once at night, to his cold, stern cabin, it eaten both little and infrequently. Neb had never imagined the sea more wild and cruel. Under the hurricane-force winds, icicles formed sideways, digging out like daggers astern. There was no lee side to anything on Cape Horn. 
Now and again, through the sheeting mixtures of sleet and rain, the coast could be glimpsed. Gigantic dark rocks with the nimbus of ice and spray framing them looked for all the world like prehistoric sea monsters, waiting to devour anything that sailed too close. Cold and wet became a thing that had to be lived with. Some of the crew lost fingers and toes to frostbite. Two of them on the same day fell from the rigging to their deaths in the bedlam of freezing waves. Sometimes Neb imagined he could hear thunder in the distance, or was it just the boom of tidal-sized waves crashing upon the coastal rocks? Driven forward one day, then twice as far back the next, the ship tacked sideways and often turned completely about, sails filling to bursting, then slacking with tremendous slapping sounds. Half the cargo of ironware was jettisoned into the sea to keep the vessel afloat. One morning, Neb was recruited to join a party in the midship's hold, where groaning timbers were leaking water into the hatch space. All day he spent there, plugging away at cracks with his mallet, flat chisel, and lengths of heavy tarred rope they called oakum. The boy's hands became so bruised and cracked with the cold that another crewman had to take his place. Neb fought back tears of pain as he thrust both hands into a pail of hot water into the galley stove. Denmark whined and placed his head against the boy's leg. Even over the melee of waves, wind, and creaking timbers, Vanderdecken's voice could be heard cursing the crew, Cape Horn, the weather, and the heaving seas with the most blood-curling oaths and imprecations. Three weeks later, the Flying Dutchman was in the same position, pushed back again, halfway betwixt Tierra del Fuego and Malvinas Isles, defeated for the second time by Cape Horn. Weary, sick, and half-starved, the crew lay in the fossicle cabin. There was a terrible atmosphere hanging over the place. No longer did the men speak to one another. They stayed in their bunks or huddled alone in quarters. corners. Some had missing fingers and toe joints from the frostbite. All of them, to a man, were beginning to suffer with scurvy, owing to the lack of fresh vegetables. Teeth loosened and fell out, hair too, Sores formed around cracked lips. The two who had perished were not mourned. Their blankets, clothing, and personal effects were immediately stolen by former crewmates. Survival was the order of the day, with each man knowing his chances of staying alive were growing shorter, alone and freezing out on the South Atlantic Ocean within the radius of the great white unknown regions of Antarctica. Locked in the galley with his dog, Neb could do nothing but carry out his captain's orders. He smashed up broken rigging to feed the stove fire, supplementing it with tar rope, barrel staves, and any waste he found. Water was growing short. The coffee supply was almost negligible. Food was down to the bare minimum. Still, he carried out his duties as best he could, knowing the alternative would be for him and the dog to move into the crew's cabin. He shuddered to think about how that would end up. Vanderdecken had told him that that was what his fate would be unless he obeyed orders. The captain kept, kept to his cabin at the stern, showing himself only once every evening when the day's single meal was served. Armed with a pepper pot, musket, and sword, he would arrive at the galley with his tray and command Neb to open up. Having served himself with weakened coffee and a plate of the meager stew, he would half fill another bowl with drinking water and give Neb his usual orders. Heed me carefully, boy. I will return to my cabin now. 
Place the pans of stew, coughing water with the crew out on the deck and get back quickly inside. I'll ring the ship's bell and they'll come and get their meal then. I'll ring the bell again in the morning when they return the empty pans. Collect them and lock yourself in again. If they catch you without galley door open, the scum will slay you, eat your dog, and strip the galley bare. You open this door only to me. Understand? Ned, his eyes never leaving the captain, saluted and replied and set about his tasks. Only once did the crew member venture out on deck for reasons other than going to the galley door. Mr. Vogel, the German mate, driven almost mad with hunger and cold, approached the captain's cabin. He was a big, powerfully built man. Emboldened by the ship's predicament, he banged on Vanderdecken's door. When the door did not open, he began shouting, Captain, it is I, Vogel. You must turn the ship around. If we stay here any longer, all will be lost. Captain, I beg you to listen. We are fast running out of food and water. The men are sick and weak. This ship will not stand up to these seas for long. We are going nowhere. Give the order to put about and sail for safety, Captain. We can go anywhere. Malvinas, San Marias, Bahia Blanca, the Americas are close. There we could refit the vessel, sell what cargo remains on board, take on another cargo, and sail for Algiers, Morocco, Spain, even home to Copenhagen. Soon you will have a mutiny aboard if we sit here, Captain. You know what I say makes sense. Do it now, I implore you, in the name of the Lord. Vanderdecken cocked the big pepper pot musket. It was a clumsy but awesome weapon. One pull of the trigger could send out a fusillade of leaden shot, six heavy musket balls. Without opening the cabin door, he fired, the blast killing Bogle instantly. Neb and his dog jumped with shock at the sound of the explosion. Reloading swiftly, the captain marched from the cabin with sword and pistol. A maniac light in his eyes, calling out in a voice like thunder, Neb and his crew could not help but hear. I am Vanderdecken, master of the Flying Dutchman. I take orders from neither God nor man. Nothing can stop me, nothing in this world nor the heavens above. Cower in your cabins or throw yourselves into the waters. What need have I of worthless walk dregs who call themselves sailors? Sailors, I'll show you a sailor, a captain. As soon as I have this ship rigged and ready, I set course again for Tierra del Fuego. I will take my vessel round the horn single-handed. Do you hear? Single-handed. Stand in my path, and I will slay you all. Not one soul aboard thought that he could ready the ship for sail alone, but Vanderdecken did it. All night and half the day, he could be heard banging, clattering, scaling the masts, dragging sailcloth from lockers, revving lines and lashing yards. His final mad act was to slash the sheet anchors free, fore and aft, then he dashed to the steering wheel and bound himself to it. The flying Dutchman took the swell of the gale as it struck her stern. Off into the seas, the battered craft sped, like a fleeing stag pursued by the hounds of hell into the midwinter wastes of the ocean, headed again for Cape Horn and destiny. One week later, the food and water ran out. Without the captain's protection now, Neb was left to fend for himself. 
The boy had never been so frightened before. Now bolting the galley door, he fortified it by jamming the table and empty barrels against it. Whenever a crewman hauled himself across the swaying rolling decks to bang upon the galley door, Denmark's half-hackles rose and he barked and snarled like a wild beast until the crewman went away. Each time the ship lost its way and was driven back into the pounding melee of blue-green waves, Vanderdecken screeched and raved, his sanity completely gone, tearing at his hair and shaking a bloodless fist at the seas and sky, sometimes laughing, other times weeping openly in his delirium. On the first day following that dreadful week, the Flying Dutchman was driven backward for the third time by a howling hurricane of wind, snow, and rain. But straight to the east, the vessel careened this time, sails torn, masts cracked, shipping water that sloshed about in the empty folds from which the last scraps of the cargo had been jettisoned to save the ship. Then, by some perverse freak of nature, the weather suddenly becalmed itself. An olive-hued stillness hung upon the Atlantic. Rain, snow, and wind ceased. Startled by this sudden change, Neb and his dog came out on deck. The crew deserted their accommodation, creeping out gratuitously into the dull afternoon. It was as if heaven and all the elements were conspiring to play some pitiless joke on the Flying Dutchman. Yuck! All hands turned to watch Vanderdecken, for it was he who had bored like a condemned man being dragged to execution. With his sword, he was feverishly hacking at the ropes that bound him from the ship's wheel. Tearing himself loose, oblivious to the onlookers, he jabbed his blade skyward and began hurling abuse at the weather, at the failure, at the Lord. Even though the crew and men hardened to the vilest of oaths, they were riveted speechless by their captain's blasphemy. Neb fell on his knees and hugged the dog that stood guarding him. Across on the eastern horizon, whose dull skies gave way to immense flanks of jet-black thunderclouds building up out of nowhere. With fearsome speed, they boiled and rumbled until they darkened the daylight overhead. Simultaneously, a bang of thunder shook the very ocean, and a colossal chain of crackling lightning ripped the clouds apart. Men covered their eyes at the unearthly scene. The green lights of St. Elmo's fire caught almost every spar, mast, and timber of the vessel, illuminating the Flying Dutchman in an eerie green glow. Vanderdecken fell back against the wheel, eyes staring, mouth gaping as the green flame sword blade fell from his nerveless grasp. Ned had buried his face in the dog's coat, but as Denmark crouched flat, he unwittingly allowed his master this view. A being, not of this earth, was hovering just above the deck. It was neither man nor woman, tall and shining white, bearing a great sword. It turned and pointed the sword at Vanderdecken. Its voice when it spoke was like a thousand harps strummed by the wind, raging out over the sea, beautiful yet terrifying. Mortal man, you are but a grain of sand in this mighty ocean. Your greed and your cruelty and your arrogance turned your tongue against your maker. Henceforth and for all the day's time, this ship with you and all upon it are lost to the sight of heaven. 
you will sail the waters of the world for eternity. Neb saw Scraggs then, and Sin, Petrus, Vogel, and the two hands that had been swept from the rigging and drowned. All of them, pale, silent, and dripping seawater, stood by the crew, staring with dead eyes at their captain. It was a sight to haunt the boys' dreams for centuries to come. A sea-scarred ship, crewed by the dead, and, who, and those who would never know the release of death, standing in the fiery green light, silently accusing the captain who had brought the curse of the Lord upon them and the flying Dutchman. Without warning, the elements returned. At the sound of a second thunderbolt, the waves sprang up. Icy sleet carried sideways on the wailing wind, drove a huge roller, smashing into the vessel's port side. Ned and Denmark were washed from the deck straight into the Atlantic Ocean. Clinging to the dog's collar with both hands, the boy did not see the wind spar that struck him, nor did he know that his good and faithful dog pulled him up onto that same spar, saving them both. The last thing he remembered was a cold abyss of darkness. The flying Dutchman receded into the storm-torn darkness, leaving astern a dog clinging to a spar with an unconscious boy draped across it, cast away upon the deeps. Van der Decken and his crew sailed cursed into eternity, leaving the Dutchman's wake two castaways upon the sea. A struggling dog, a helpless boy, pounded by storm and wave, victims of the dread Cape Horn, that deep and watery grave. But lo, an angel returned to them, commanding serene and calm, bringing a message into their minds, preserving the friends from harm. You are saved by innocence of heart and granted your lives anew, the gift of heaven's mercy bestowed in faith on you. I am sent to bless you both with, with that which you shall need, boundless youth understanding and speech to succeed. Throughout the ages roam this world and wherever need is great, bring confidence and sympathy, help others to change their fate. Fear not the tyrant's brittle, bitter frown, but aid the poor in their woe. Make truth and hope bring evil down. Spread peace and joy where you go. So that's the end of the first section of this book. So it, it tells you what happened to Neb and his dog and how they kind of ended up in this limbo state of existence. And so you have this angel now that gave them a, a new task. And their task is to travel throughout the world and spreading peace and joy and helping people that they meet and um that's all that i have for you guys today so i hope you enjoyed it <laughs> went a little faster than when i practiced last night so i still have a, some, a few minutes left if you want some more coffee and cookies or anything like that <laughs> you have any questions yeah questions about the books, about the costumes, about boring work. What do you want to talk about? Yes. Yes, I made this. This is actually the third version that I made of this costume. And um, it took me about three months to do it. Um, at the time, my boyfriend was very frustrated with me because all I did was sew. And um, the coat is made out of um, upholstery fabric. So things you would cover furniture with, and um, just various types of fabric, and just dyeing it, and you know, 
running over it in the car to make it look weathered and things like that. It was pretty fun. So you put your car? <laughs> car, you know, I let my cat play around with it, you know, I tear it. It's pretty fun. That part was fun. Putting it together wasn't fun, but destroying it, yeah, it kind of was. It was kind of sad too at the same time, but yeah. And actually, um, my friends and I, we each have a Pirates of the Caribbean character that we do. Um, unfortunately, I'm the only one in Columbus, which is why they're not with me. But um, I do have a friend up in Cleveland. He does Jack Sparrow. His wife does Elizabeth. Um, my friend in Dayton does Mr. Gibbs, who is Jack's first mate. So we're just kind of scattered around the state. And throughout the year, we do different events, like at the Renaissance Festival. Um, sometimes a business will hire us for entertainment or whatever. And we all get together and interact with each other, and it's just hilarious. Because once my friend puts on that tricorn hat, he's all like, <laughs> and it's just, it's just really great, it's really fun. So, any more questions for me? Right. Thank you guys for showing up. Thank you.